Proverbs 22, starting at verse 22, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot tempered man where you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Now tonight, I want to take you through a few points here, uh, really just uh, four main points. I'm really going to also skip a fifth one because we've covered it before. But first of all, I want to talk a little bit about, first of all, maintaining the rights of the poor from verse 22 to 23. Verse 24 and 25, beware of hanging around angry men. Verse 26 and 27, I'm just entitling, do not cosign. Uh, but we're not really going to spend much time there because we've talked about this before. Verse 27 and 28, uh, do not move the boundary markers. And then finally, verse 29, the rewards of a job well done. So as you can see, um, we have a variety of topics that we're going to try and combine together uh, in a single message here. First of all, let's talk about verses 22 and 23 in our text again. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Now, remember that Proverbs is a book of instruction for young men, primarily those who are training for future leadership in Solomon's administration. And here the young men under Solomon's training are to learn to maintain justice in the gates. That is, they are to uphold God's law. Remember that justice is defined uh, by God and by his law. And they are to defend the rights of God's people, especially those who are disadvantaged and those who are vulnerable. Uh, they are not uh, to take advantage of the vulnerable. Um, they are to protect the vulnerable, particularly widows, the fatherless and those who are poor. Those who may not have the greatest advantages of uh, skill or education. God is concerned for righteousness and he is concerned for everyone who is made in his image, particularly the vulnerable. Uh, those who may be oppressed because of social, political or economic disadvantages. And believers are, are to be concerned that their rights are maintained. The rights of the poor are maintained. Some men are so evil and unscrupulous that they actually seek to take advantage of the vulnerable. One time I heard the confession of a car salesman who told me that it was not uncommon uh, before the dealership changed their policy to a no haggle pricing policy to actually see poorer people with fewer business skills actually pay more for the car than wealthier people did. And uh, and this bothered him. And it should uh, that that salesmen would take advantage of those whose skills in negotiating may not be as strong as others. Uh, this is exactly what the, the Bible is speaking against here. 
We are not to take advantage of people because they are a widow or because they may not have certain abilities or skills. Notice here that Solomon says we are not to crush the afflicted at the gate. Now, what does that mean, boys and girls, to crush the afflicted at the gate? Well, the gate was the place where cases uh, often were settled. Maybe you can think of, for example, uh, the situation with Boaz and, and Ruth and how all of that was taken care of at the gate. When Boaz you know, says to his nearest relative, his nearest kin, come here, you know, and in his Ken comes here and says, you know, uh, there's this woman and, uh, you know, she's got Naomi, a relative of ours. And she's got this property and et cetera. You know the story, uh, but you're going to have to marry Ruth. And he's like, whoa, wait, I'm out. And, uh, and so Boaz then goes ahead and, and agrees uh, to take Ruth as his wife. That was done at the gate. Um, the gates were places where legal work was done, places of judgment, it was a place of justice. And it was to be a place of righteousness. That's why the Bible speaks about the gates so much. There was to be equity before the law of God here. Um, it was not to be a place of robbery or fraud or deceit or bribery. The gates were to be the place where God's law was upheld, where the poor were not treated with greater favor or lesser favor because of their poverty. Now, in verse 23, note here, however, the Lord is an avenger. When, when people do take advantage of those who are vulnerable, God is often the avenger of the widow. The Bible tells us, I think it's in the book of Deuteronomy, that if the widow cries out to the Lord because of the oppression of others, God will hear and answer the prayers of the widow and bring judgment upon her oppressors. He will hear their cry and bring judgment he will deliver in his providential care verdicts. Uh, I, we don't know how the Lord does it, but you don't want to find out. <laughs> he will he will see to it that justice is done and he will bring vindication sometimes in history, in this life and definitely and certainly in the world to come. Now, I want to say a few things by way of application, first of all, to us as a church. Number one, the elders, we who are representatives of God's people today in the new covenant, the elders of the church are to uphold God's word and standards without favoritism. We, and I speak as a fellow elder, uh, we are not, as James tells us, to tell the poor man you sit at my feet while we give a preferential seat to the rich. Um, we are to treat all with equity um, before God. Each is made in the image of God, and we are not to be giving preferential treatment in the way we handle our decisions as a session. We are to treat uh, all fairly. Secondly, the church, as a church, I think, does need to advocate for the general equity of God's law in society, meaning that we are to look at the law of God, the moral law, but also the civil law, and, and we're sometimes it's called the judicial law, and we are to say, what are the moral principles of these uh, case laws that we find in Exodus, in Deuteronomy? And what are the applications of these to society? Uh, the, the, the Westminster Confession faith says that the judicial laws have ceased with the state of Israel. That is, they are not binding as they were in the same way upon Israel, but 
There are moral principles or what the confession calls the general equity thereof. There are there are general moral principles to be derived from studying the case laws of the Old Testament that are useful for uh, societies today and that the church should consider the ways that God protects the rights of the poor and that we should seek to protect their rights. Thirdly, by way of application here, we need to recognize that God may indeed justly avenge with judgment the cause of those who have been oppressed in our own culture, in our own nation. You think of, for example, the cause of the unborn, speaking of those who have been crushed, crushed even to death by our laws, our courts, our Congress, past presidents. Uh, Many have oppressed and afflicted the unborn in our land. And God is slow to anger. That is true. But his justice will not sleep forever. We need to recognize the danger that our society is under so long as we continue to promote wickedness and the the shedding of innocent blood, uh, even prenatal children. God may be bringing a great judgment upon us. We may already be under that judgment. That may be why God is continuing to hand our society over to greater and greater wickedness. Things that would never have been allowed now are, are allowed and promoted uh, because we have been destroying the lives of millions of prenatal children. We need to be an advocate for their cause as well as for the born, those who are poor, uh, that their rights are not trampled upon. So uh, we must uh, maintain the rights of the poor. That's first section, 22, 23. I want to move on now to the next couplet, verse 24 and 25. And this one deals with anger, issues of anger. Do not beware of hanging around angry men. Notice here, verse 24. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Now, why is Solomon concerned about this issue of hanging around angry people? Well, the Bible tells us that anger does not produce the righteousness of God. For one, we know from the book of Galatians The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the Bible also says that we often take on the characteristics of those that we tend to hang around. And so Solomon is warning us about regular communion with angry men, that that will lead us to develop the bad habit of ourselves becoming increasingly angry, impatient, judgmental, intolerant, peevish, discontent, etc. We need to be aware of that. We don't want a coarsening within ourselves. We don't want our behavior to coarsen. We don't want our temper to become shorter and shorter. As Paul said to the Corinthians, bad company does corrupt. Good morals. And so we need to minimize our interaction with those who are prone to wrath, not to learn their ways, not to imitate them. Now, we can look positively to the Lord Jesus Christ as an example. Jesus had a perfectly sanctified emotional life. He never sinned in his emotional life. And Jesus could become angry. We've seen a few occasions where He did become angry. 
When children were prohibited from seeing him and being blessed by him, he became angry. We saw just last Sunday, he became angry at the way they had perverted the temple and they had turned the outer court of the Gentiles, which should have been a place for foreigners to come and hear the word of God, that they turned it into a stockade and he took a cord of and made a whip and drove the animals out and overturned the money changers. He was angry. Uh, he was angry at Peter, his friend, when Peter said, Lord, forbid that you should go to the cross. And he says to him, get behind me, Satan, uh, because you are setting your mind on the things of men and not of God. So there were times Jesus truly became angry, but he was not known as an angry man. That's the difference. In fact, he was known as a meek and gentle man and and that's what made his anger actually so terrifying it is that when he did become angry, you knew it was something awful and terrible, uh, worthy of being angry about. And, and so that is uh, why we should always be looking to the, G- to, to the Lord Jesus Christ for uh, a sense of what our emotional life should look like. So be careful who you hang around, boys and girls. It does influence you. Now, verse 26 and 27, I'm not really going to spend much time on. We've dealt with this in previous Proverbs. Um, basically, don't co-sign somebody who has a debt and they're taking out a loan uh, and they don't have a sufficient collateral in the eyes of the bank and the bank wants a co-signer to help guarantee the loan. Basically, Proverbs says this is unwise. Don't do it. Um, there's a reason that the bank wants somebody to co-sign. It's it's not a reliable loan. They're they're worried about it. And you should be, too. And that's the point. Let me move on. Verse 27, 28. Do not move the boundary markers. Verse 27. And uh, excuse me, verse 28. Excuse me. I said 27, 28. Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Now, what is this about? Well, the law clearly prohibits in the Old Testament the moving of boundary markers. Boundary markers were the markers, uh, the kind of like the property markers. Maybe your property has um, metal stakes in the corners of the property. It shows where the property lines are. Whenever you sell your house or you, you're buying a house, often the county will send somebody out and they will check, make sure that the lines are right and that the property markers are where they should be, uh, making sure you're getting what you're paying for. Um, And so here the law is prohibiting the moving of those boundary markers. Uh, It was a form of fraud or theft to uh, to move those markers, to move them uh, to acquire more. Boundary markers had the force of law behind them. And so the young men were to be aware of covetousness that would seek to steal from neighbors by moving those boundary markers to new locations here. And of course, we need to be aware of every form of covetousness ourselves. Um, Covetousness is like fire. It's always saying more, 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 more. Also, we need to uh, uphold what our fathers have laid down. I think there's many good applications for this. I think even theologically, I don't want to spiritualize this, but I think also there's something to be said about being very careful not to move the boundary markers that have been laid down for centuries for the church. There is wisdom to be found in the councils. Uh, councils do err. We, we, we know that they can err. But I think there is wisdom as a church to look at 
Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea in 325. And look at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Look at what the Westminster Divines laid down for us. These are in some ways, I think, boundary markers. And, and we do well to um, look at where they have drawn the lines. Uh, this is not to say that God cannot give new light uh, from the scriptures for us to make progress from former generations. But I think we need to be very careful. And if you find yourself coming to conclusions that Nicaea uh, disagrees with, you are probably wrong. <laughs> and if you find yourself coming to conclusions about the person of Christ and his natures or of the Trinity, uh, Contrary to what Chalcedon has come and uh, summarized, you are probably wrong. And, and you need to be very careful. This is why uh, we do need to learn. You know, people say, well, I just need me and my Bible. Well, even the Bible says, no, you don't. The Bible says God has given the gifts of the spirit uh, and has given the gifts of teaching to his church. And we need to listen to what teachers have laid down in centuries past. Um, even the Bible says, don't just get in the closet with you and your Bible and try to figure everything out yourself. And the spirit has given gifts to the church and we are not to be lone rangers uh, trying to figure out very complex uh, issues about the person of Christ and about the Trinity our, ourselves. If it was just you and your Bible, if, if theoretically we just from infancy on, we put you in a closet and gave you a Bible and checked in with you, you know, 20 some years later to figure out what did you discern from this book, you probably would get it wrong. You need to realize that you probably would get it wrong. Um, you you have way too much confidence in yourself. If, if you think that just simply you and the scriptures. Now, again, this is not to uh, deny sola scriptura, but we need to realize the scriptures themselves say that uh, there's great blessing to be had in the body of Christ as a member with many members, with many gifts given. Um, we're reminded of this regularly, those of us who have the privilege of going to Presbytery or General Assembly to when we meet with other brothers to hear the discussions that take place and realize God has given insights and gifts uh, that we don't have uh, to others in the church. And they know that my brothers know a lot of things that I don't know. And how dependent I am upon, for example, teachers. You know, we have many uh, in our presbytery who are professors at Greenville Seminary, for example, or Covenant College. And you realize, you know, just in, in the debates that we have, how much knowledge they have uh, in areas that I've never even touched as a, a seminary student. So we need to be very careful uh, theologically uh, when it comes to boundary markers. I want to say... Um, one more thing here, and that is verse 29, um, before we come to the Lord's table tonight. And that is the rewards of a job well done. I want to speak also to the kids tonight here, uh, because uh, this is a subject for you. You have a job. Um, you, you may not think you have a job. You may think, oh, mom has a job or dad has a job. I don't have a job. I'm, I'm just a kid. Well, you do have a job if you're, you're a student. <laughs> And uh, I want to talk a little bit here with the remainder of our time, the rewards of a job well done. Look at verse 29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Uh, here, Solomon is telling us that the quality uh, of our work does matter. 
We as Christians should especially be concerned about doing things well because we wear the name of Christ on ourselves and our person. And, and we want to glorify Christ. Now, we, we don't glorify Christ by using and, and looking at our vocation simply as a soapbox to evangelize while doing poor work at the same time. Rather, the way we ought to look at it is my first job is to do good work. And as I do good work as unto the Lord, hopefully that will also open up doors of opportunity for me to explain what motivates me. What it is that drives me. I'm not a workaholic. It's not that I'm just looking for to get more uh, out of this world. I'm not working for the weekend, as the song of the 80s said. No, I'm working as one who is self-conscious of the omnipresence of God. That the eye of the Lord is upon me as I go about my work. He sees me at work. He sees uh, the details of what I am doing. And so it means that um, even if no human eye ever notices some of the things that I'm doing in terms of the details of my work, it means I still want to do it right because I know the Lord is watching and the Lord is going to reward. And so we are to work industriously, not with a slack hand. Boys and girls, not simply doing your homework when mom and dad come in the room, uh, and, you know, but working at your homework the way you're supposed to be doing your homework, not daydreaming, uh, not, you know, getting sidetracked by rabbit trails and things, but doing what you need to be doing. Um, it's important that you try to honor the Lord by doing good work. That means learning the math assignment, learning the English assignment, the history, the art, Whatever the discipline of the day is that you're having to undertake as a student, um, that you do this schoolwork as unto the Lord. Not just when the teacher's watching, uh, not just when mom and dad are watching, but even if no one is seeing what you're doing, that you do it uh, unto him. Use your time wisely. Uh, we don't want to work only when we're going to get human credit for it. We want to grow uh, in whatever God is calling us to do. We don't want to rest on past achievements. Sometimes it's easy to say, well, I did well on the first two tests this semester. I think I'll, you know, take my ease for the rest of the semester. And, uh, you know, even if I flunk the test, I'm still going to get a B in this class because I've already gotten A's on my first few exams. Uh, we don't want to we don't want to take that perspective either. Notice what Proverbs says here. It says that those who do exceptional work may find themselves before important people. In this case, he says that he will stand before kings. Well, kings, of course, are very important people. And what is it that we know about kings? Well, kings want the best of everything, right? They're always looking for those who are skilled in their various areas. They want the best. They want the best cooks. I'm sure you don't, you know, I'm sure that the White House has very good chefs in it. I'm sure they are very skilled. I'm sure the White House makes certain that they hire very good people in the kitchen. Uh, they, they make certain that they have good launderers, excellent gardeners. Uh, that, that's what kings are looking for. Um, they, they are looking for the best. They, they have people coming from other countries to see what's going on. And they, they want everything to be excellent, everything to be perfect. 
And so what Solomon is saying here is that um, whatever it is that we're doing, if we do it well and, and always for the king of kings, it shouldn't surprise us if a earthly king takes notice and asks us, hey, will you do this for me? Um, oftentimes, you know, the White House wants uh, the best business executives to talk to them about business or the best entertainers to come or the best artists. Uh, there's only one college football team that's going to go to the White House this year. OK, it's going to be the best. The best one uh, is going to get invited. There's only one NFL team that's going to get to go to the White House in uh, February or whenever. It's, it's going to be the one who wins the Super Bowl. So the, the application is for us to do our jobs well, even if we're doing it obscurely, the Lord is the one who takes notice of our obscurity. And you never know. There's strange providential things do happen. And being faithful in something that you think otherwise is uh, completely obscure, you may find yourself in the providence of God being moved up, elevated up, that someone takes a notice uh, in your work. So work is under the Lord. Um, do what Paul says, whatever you find your hand doing, do it diligently is unto God. Uh, seek to please him uh, in, in your business. And who knows? The Lord may look at you and tell you, I want you to come up higher and sit higher at this table. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus did everything perfectly and Jesus did everything for you. We thank you that even before his public ministry, he worked in obscurity in Galilee. In his father's shop. And he did it well. And you were pleased to put him into the ministry. Now, Lord, we pray that we who carry his name might do our work well, that we would be known as a church who produces good workmen, good moms, good students. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.